0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Health Excel podcast with me, Chandana.
1: And Martin.
0: Today, with us, we have Abir Sen, who's the executive chairman of Gravy. And we'll be talking to Abir about his life uh, so far and everything about uh, the US payer market and um, value based care, etc. Okay. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Abir,
2: Great to have very- you
1: this is our first uh you're a bit of a guinea pig this is our first virtual one where we usually do these in person in yeah. nice locations we're hosting our events so uh and it, it'll be unproduced okay so this is just uh, kind of having a conversation so thanks for joining us where, where are you where are you zooming in from today
2: i'm in lovely minneapolis minnesota
0: nice
1: okay yeah. the last time the last time we met was in dublin i think it was probably three or Three, two three years ago now so it's been a while so it has yeah. been a while yeah. you know what so Lisa in
0: says so according to Lisa it's the zoom where it happens so this is where it's all happening <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. so uh, uh, let's kick off then we've been trying to we're trying to do a bit of stalking and <laughs> understand your your background and you know we got um, we got a really good coverage from Elizabeth on everything after your uh, economics degree. But we wanted to try and dig in a little bit before that. So um, maybe just give us a little background. How did you, tell us a, bit, a little bit of kind of where you started and kind of how did you end up going, starting on the economics uh, track?
2: Sure. I, well, I grew up in uh, Bombay, India and, uh, you know, came to the U.S. to pursue a liberal arts education. And in India, you have this weird thing where if you do, you know, somewhat well in school growing up, there's a lot of pressure to either become a doctor or an engineer, and uh, well, <laughs> engineering, <laughs> uh, engineering wasn't uh, really for me, and uh, I faint when I see blood, so being a doctor was out of the question. So uh, liberal arts seemed like a good way uh, to sort of postpone the decision, and uh, you know, the U.S. obviously is probably the, one of the best places to get a liberal arts education. So I came here. Uh, Were you disowned
0: by your parents by then, or they was just hanging on still? They they held
2: out hope until about maybe two years ago that somehow I'll become a doctor. But uh, so economics, you know, so the the way I think it worked, and I went to a small liberal arts college called Lawrence University uh, in Wisconsin, and uh, economics was my major, but I also spent a lot of time in uh, philosophy and uh, the humanities as well. Uh, which I felt in the long run, you know, uh, really prepares you well and teaching you how to think, at least from my perspective. So, uh, and I would highly recommend it, but you do need to declare a major. And I thought economics is probably as good as any, any else, especially to get a job afterwards. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so the, and that's how the economics thing came about. But after that, as you uh, alluded to, so I left, uh, Lawrence and, uh, Joined a consulting firm, uh, Deloitte, and we were really doing mergers and acquisitions for large health plans and health. Insurance. Can, I
1: stop, can, you, can I stop you there? So, yeah, sure. what, what was the the path from economic degree into M and A and turnaround at Deloitte and in, in managed care and and uh, integrated? Yeah, economics? I mean,
2: as as usually these things happens, it was serendipity. I mean, I uh, Deloitte happened to recruit on campus and i really had a vague idea of what consulting was but uh, sounded good and a lot of my friends were doing it so uh ended up uh joining the minneapolis office of deloitte and my first project just happened to be a healthcare project and you know the, the way they staff first-time analysts is like you're available so get on the project and i um, got interested in healthcare partly i think because the, the you know this was the late 90s so a lot of things were changing and there was a lot of opportunity so I really got interested in healthcare. I didn't really like consulting. So at the, uh, about nine months into it, a group of us that worked at Deloitte together uh, left to start our first company, which was Dfinity Health or became okay. known as Dfinity Health. Um, so at a short-stinted consulting, you know, when we started the company, we were all in our twenties. I was the youngest at 23 and I think mean the oldest guy was like 29. So it took us a while to figure out what we were doing. Yeah. But uh, but that was the start of sort of uh, the first of the different companies that I've been
0: involved in. It's interesting though, what, I mean, if you didn't like consulting, I mean, the default option would be, let me look for a different kind of job, but instead you decided to start your own thing. What was the stimulus that kind of drove you in that direction? Yeah, I think the stimulus
2: was that nobody would give me the job that I wanted except myself. So- <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that really was part partly it. And I think also you gotta remember the context of the time. This was the late '90s, and everybody was starting companies. Now nobody was starting healthcare companies. So it took us uh, two and a half years uh, to get financing. But it seemed to be the you know the mood of the nation at the time, or the mood of the world for that matter. So. It was about the mid '90s, Amir. This was '98.
1: Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, just before the dot com. So that was.
2: Yeah. So we raised our first round of financing, I think a month before the bubble burst. Okay. <laughs> so uh, and and really you know, the opportunity Jandana, to, to answer your question, perhaps a little bit more uh, to the point is, you know, we were, as we we're doing a lot of these M&A deals, we, sat, we found that a lot of the companies were uh, really losing money on an operating basis, but they were making money on insurance float. So these were really truly insurance companies, yet they wanted to be valued as something other than that. And they they wanted to be valued as managed care companies, quote unquote, which was the indicator to us that fundamentally the business model was broken and there was probably a better way to design the way that health plans operated. Mm -hmm. And our fundamental sort of premise of DFINITY, which I think carries over to what we're doing at Gravy through all these years, is that you got to have the incentives of all the different parties aligned, specifically the consumer's incentives to be a good... Care uh, needs to be aligned and starts with the plan design. uh, design. So that's how you know the account-based, consumer-driven healthcare stuff uh, came about.
1: Okay, Okay, brilliant.
2: So then, from how did that finish up? How did Definity finish up? So, DFINITY, After the couple of years of banging our head against a wall, um, we did get funded, and then a couple of companies, large companies like Medtronic uh, and others, uh, decided to give us a shot and made us their health health insurance option for their employees. And then, really, the company went through a period of rapid growth. So, uh, went to you know zero to close to a hundred million in revenue and. you know, under four years. Wow. And in Man. the midst, I, uh so when the company got going, I decided to go to business school. So I left Dfinity in 2003, uh, independent. Oh, a small place called Harvard, right? You did an MBA in that little <laughs> zone. I did, don't hold it against me. And I, you know, and while I was in business school, Dfinity got sold to United Health Group, which really was our main competitor. And uh, they bought us out as a way to sort of a, eliminate a competitor, but also to bolster uh, their you know, consumer-driven healthcare uh, abilities. And when I came back, I came back to DFINITY under United and spent a little bit of time there uh, before I reconnected with some of my old founders and we started Red Brick Health, which was the next next venture. Okay. And was it the same gang again? It wasn't the same gang, but it was a couple of the same people. So it was okay. two of the same founders. We had, we had seven founders at DFINITY, I think two of them and me. Uh, so three of us started uh, Red Brick and the idea was that, you know, we thought we had learned maybe a few lessons about consumerism and healthcare and uh, w- especially on the payer side and could we apply that to uh, a kind of a, a pretty state industry at the time, uh, which was this employer health and wellness. And that was the basic idea behind Red Brick is how do we sort of create a wellness program that actually works and gets people engaged and so on. And wow. Red Brick. Uh, just got sold a couple of years ago to a private equity firm and is now merged with Virgin Health. So uh, still, you know, going strong. And uh, uh, but but that was the journey at Red Brick. Okay.
0: Well, that basically sounds like you were on the ball well before this became a thing.
2: Yeah. So there were only a couple of companies uh, nationally when we started Red Brick that were doing wellness, and it was very much, yeah, you know an old school sort of 90s mentality where every other industry and this is like 2006 um, had you know leaps and bounds had gone through different many changes so uh, so the idea of you know creating games, uh, incentives all of that was uh you know started at red brick along with a couple others i mean there were a couple of competitors yes. of us that were also doing a good job but but yeah we were certainly early to the game
0: and was this kind of a digital wellness initiative or it was
2: broader? So I, you know, the digital part to me, um, that's sort of a big word and it's all encompassing. So yeah. maybe I'll just break that down. So uh, it, it, it has to be digital, right? I mean, nobody is gonna sit down with paper and keep track of, you know, health risk assessment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Exactly.
2: so, uh, so, and I think the health, health insurance industry as a whole, um, went, started going quote unquote digital on their internal administrative processes, probably in the nineties, but then they stopped right there. So a lot of times when we talk about digital now, it seems like we're talking about the next step, which is the consumer interaction with the, with the company, with the payer. So, so yeah, so in that sense, it certainly was a way to interact with the consumer, uh, in, you know, almost like being medium independent. Um, so I don't think in healthcare, especially my view is it's very hard to do Uh, One medium strategy. So I'll give you an example. So you may have a 25 year old diabetic that wants to enroll in a wellness program uh, through their iPhone. But you also may have a 65 year old diabetic that doesn't or flips or you could flip it the other way, but the 25 year old wants to call in. um, And and the the challenge is, how do you give the same experience and the same results for individuals um, Irrespective of what the medium is they choose. And oftentimes I feel like, you know, there's a whiplash where people go, oh, we're going to go all digital and everything moves to the left. And we have, you know, iPhone apps or Android apps for for things that don't really make sense. Um, so, so I think it's a combination of, uh, you know, digital and human interaction that for us seem to have worked throughout all the companies. Yeah. So
1: so you're a real masochist because then you decided to, uh, you know go on and spawn another company <laughs> so kind of you know then then red brick move then you move on to do bloom Is that right
2: so we yeah we started bloom and hopefully that was just an exercise in masochism and not so much sadism <laughs> uh, but uh, but we uh we did start bloom and the, the thing the the reason we started bloom is you know red brick was going well it was a few years into it um and we had uh you know, some of the things about Obamacare had just started out. Uh, we were just having there was some discussions, et cetera. And, you know, our thinking, my thinking was the trend that we had started uh, seeing in the late 90s of this movement away from the employer being the main decision maker and sort of be all end all of healthcare on the payer side to the consumer becoming that uh, probably will get accelerated. Uh, and we started Bloom um, sort of take advantage of that and to perhaps even accelerate that.
1: Yeah. One of the common themes through your career, beer, is uh, the business of health uh, uh, and the kind of underlying kind of economics, I guess, in terms of motivation, and then the consumer-driven aspect to it. And you know, as you read through it as a European, a lot of the language that's used in the US is very specific to the US, and a lot of the structures are very specific to the US. But yet you, you, your, your early years were in uh, India, A very different market. So I'd love your kind of perspective on, you know, how far down the road do you think the U.S. is in terms of consumer-driven healthcare? And then how do you compare that to India and other parts of the world uh, in terms of, do you think there's certain uh, markets that are are more advanced in that area or or kind of what's your perspective at a global level?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good question. So to me, the the main sort of differences are the inherent incentives for all the people involved, all the different players involved. So in the U S because of the employer sponsored healthcare, right? Where the employer, they pay for health insurance, it's pre-tax. And then the consumer buys it on their own. It's not. uh, That creates a bunch of distortions in the way that people think about healthcare and it creates incentives. And sometimes a lot of zero sum games that exist, as a result of that which I'd be happy to delve into with you because I think at Gravy we're trying to solve some of those issues um, but what that does do on the, on the positive side of things it gives greater access uh, uh, to, to health care for people than India for instance which doesn't have the same system well, in, in many parts of Europe where you have a national health care nationalized healthcare systems you have a different set of incentives a different set of issues usually on the on the provider side so I think all the systems are pluses and minuses. And it's the question of like in India, uh, you know, my mom's still in India, the doctor still comes, she'll give a phone call in the morning and there'll be a doctor at the house in the afternoon. And by the way, it's the same doctor they've had for 30 years. So, so that relationship is, is still there. Uh, she has to pay out of pocket, um, which a lot of people, and I would say most Indians cannot. So while that exists and it's easy for you know, me to romanticize that and say, "Oh, wow!" You know, we still have that doctor-patient relationship. No. Um, there's an access issue that obviously gets overlooked. Um, okay. So, hopefully, that answers your question. But, uh, but whether the West yeah. specific, go ahead.
1: Yeah, it, it does absolutely. I guess the part part I kind of struggle with a little bit is that you know, when you get serious about health, there's um, you know, there's always going to be a leverage in terms of. Uh, uh, access to uh, uh, healthcare professionals and doctors you know so so no matter what way you cut it we have a shortage of healthcare professionals and as much as we want to have a, a consumer driven market it's very hard when a lot of the power sits on the other side of the table um, so i'm i'm kind of interested in your perspective of you know, how far can we go with a kind of consumer driven model and and where do you see it you know where, where do you think we are so far and how far further can we go in, in yeah. the U.S.?
2: So as far as the U.S. goes, let me specifically focus on that for a second. There are enough dollars at play that there shouldn't be a problem. All right. right. So if you look at the amount of spend in America on healthcare, and even if you take out Medicare, just look at commercial spend, there's enough dollars at play that uh, there really should not be any problem Uh, just like there shouldn't be any problem feeding people in america uh, because there's enough money being spent on food so it becomes an allocation question so why is there an allocation problem in the us well if i if i just kind of go to the basis of it if you think about the way that the supply chain works uh, on the payer side um you know the insurance company thinks about the who's the customer of the insurance company it really isn't the consumer the customer of the insurance company in america is the broker That's who they're trying to keep happy because that's their access to the market. Who's the customer of the broker? Well, it's the employer, it's not the consumer. And the consumer, in the vast majority of the cases, just happens to be the captive audience that the employer has brought to the table. So the problem with this picture is that each of those parties are trying to keep their customer happy. So the insurance companies are doing things that keep their brokers happy, like giving them higher commissions, et cetera. Brokers are doing things that keep the employers happy. Uh, The consumer is an afterthought. So I think that's the fundamental reason why. um, uh, So now to answer your question, how far we can go. I think if we can redesign the system to get everybody focused on the consumer and and at gravy, we try to do that by giving them the power of the purse Um, almost magically some of these zero, sum games go away. And, And now everybody, the employer becomes a financier. They're not really worried about making decisions. Like it's really bizarre that my HR manager should choose which hospital I can go to when I get right. sick. That is insane. Right. Um, right. But that's where we are today for, for a lot of people. So if if we can then say, well, the cons- everybody has to make the consumer happy, otherwise you're not gonna lose your business, uh, then I think we begin to solve some of the issues that uh, that exist in the system.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. What would be nice of you then is to maybe dive in a little bit to what you're doing in Gravy and how that works. And then maybe Chandana, that's a nice segue then into yeah. the report and the payer report. So, so maybe tell us a little bit um, kind of a beer like how you're going to tackle that that specific problem and how gravy
2: is going about it. Yeah, so you know, to solve the problem that I just laid out potentially at a high level. And of course, there are many nuances of that. I'm simplifying it to some extent. Um, the premise of gravy is that employers, businesses, should be in the business of making and selling widgets uh, and not in the business of making healthcare decisions for their employees. Um, And the way we bring that about is to say to the employer, look, you're spending 10 to $15,000 per person per year, per employee per year. Um, In the traditional model, you're doing all the work, you're making all the decisions, and why not just give that money to the consumer, to the employee through our platform? And then Gravy is a marketplace of all sorts of benefits, including healthcare, and we will help the consumer figure out how best to spend that 10 to $15,000. Because you know, uh, if you think about sort of, you know, the healthcare needs of even a 500 person company, they're probably not the same, right? So you have various different people, various different situations, geographies, et cetera. Yeah. So our approach is to do an assessment on the consumer's needs and then essentially create a portfolio of products and services that are really tailored to maximize their health and to give them protection in case something happens. So we think of it as a kind of a health plan in the sense of a financial plan not in the health insurance company sense, where your financial plan is a you know, combination of stocks, bonds, mutual funds, what have you. Your financial planner helps you put it together. Similarly, uh, your health plan, you know, mine could be a high deductible plan, HSA, uh, telemedicine, blah, blah, blah. Somebody else's could be, hey, I just want a super low deductible. I just wanna make sure if something happens, I don't have to pay a dime. And that could be the way they go. Um, and one of the things we're seeing, and maybe I'm jumping a little bit ahead, uh, Martin, to some of the things you'd wanna talk about, we're seeing a disaggregation of the way healthcare is delivered to people. Uh, And we think that the way people buy healthcare today is gonna be, uh, it it looks different than how they do it tomorrow. And we see gravy as a way to put all those different pieces together in a way that makes sense for the consumer. That makes sense.
1: That's fantastic. You know, I, I spent a little bit of time in Boston when I moved over. You know, I've been going back and forth to the U.S. for a long time, but the complexity of trying to figure out my health insurance would just, you know, your head just explode. So anybody who's making that easier <laughs> and, and empowering consumers is is doing, doing the right thing. So maybe Chandler, then we can introduce that. We've done a piece of work recently, uh, Abir, trying to look at the adoption of digital within U.S. payers uh, and trying to understand, you know, be- behind all the hype and all the headlines, what's actually going on, what are the models, what's driving it forward? And so Chandana led that piece of work. We wanted to get your perspective on a couple of areas that we touched on in the report. So maybe Chandana, you can.
0: Yeah, and I think just picking up from, you know, just you talking about what Gravy's doing, how do you think the reception has been to such a a concept, right? Have you seen that these more transparent kind of new, new players in kind of the health plan space, how are the incumbents reacting? Are they kind of adopting some of the ways you're doing things? Are they partnering with you? Um, Just maybe talk a a little bit about the reactions.
2: Yeah, the reactions as you would suspect, uh, depend on what people's uh, parochial interests are. So a lot of brokers initially were, oh my God, this threatens my business because why do I need a broker anymore? if, If the employer is not making decisions, why is the broker needed? So we found some pushback from them, and then of course many brokers got on on board with us, and mm-hmm. uh, you know we work with them. Um, benefit managers at large companies. Oh my God, this will never work. You know this is very complex. I was on a panel in in, in actually a, I won't name the company. It's a Fortune 500 yeah. company, and. Uh, <laughs> and we were, I think their chief medical officer was just talking about how wonderful the current system is and how consumer-driven mm-hmm. you know systems are meant to fail, um, which was insane. But then I suddenly thought about it. I was like, yeah, because if consumer-driven healthcare succeeds, you mm-hmm. know, defiantly broadly, I don't mean it just HSA kind of things, but if consumerism in healthcare succeeds, then Fortune 500 companies don't need a chief medical officer, unless you happen to be a healthcare company. This this one was, was a tech company. so. So that sort of dawned on me and it was kind of an exercise in future. By the way, they were also our hosts. So I probably shouldn't have been bad enough. <laughs> um, so, I'm sorry? Please leave, a beer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but the fundamental thing, though, was um, that we liked the people that like us are the people that we want to be liked by, which is consumers like us. Our net promoter score is off the charts, right? It's in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and that's really, at the end of the day, all we care about. Now, we can't be completely blind to all the other, pay, you know, the ecosystem. And there's yeah. only so many people we can piss off before it starts to hurt us. Yeah. But uh, but at the end of the day, the, the person I really care about is how does the consumer feel about our services?
0: Yeah. Okay. So there is some threat, but it's not, I think everybody can happily coexist and we're letting the, the end user,
2: yeah, I choice. I wouldn't go too far. I don't think everybody can happily coexist. I don't think the health plans of tomorrow are the health plans of today. I think there are a lot of insurance companies that are going to go out of business um, simply because they're they're not geared for survival. Uh, and I'm happy to sort of go a little bit deeper into why that is, unless it's, I don't want to go off on a tangent because I do feel comfortable <laughs> about this. This is
0: good. Uh, yeah, but that's interesting that you say that because based on a lot of the conversations we had. Um, One thing that's really clear is that they want to partner with people like you. They want to test the waters and see, okay, can we expand our suite of offerings? Can we become more consumer friendly? You know, how do we, I think there is a motivation to try and change some of that, but I'm sure you're closer to it because obviously I guess you can say a lot of things, but any thoughts on, you know, do you see these type of um, integrations happening, whether it's in the form of partnerships, maybe two larger companies who have complementary capabilities coming together, kind of horizontal, vertical integrations. For sure, and I don't by no
2: means mean to say that all health insurance companies are gonna go out of business uh, because I think some are taking the right steps uh, and are preparing themselves for whatever the future may hold. Um, But let me perhaps just offer two points. One is if you think about what a lot of health insurers in America uh, what their main asset is, it's the value of the network discount that they've negotiated with providers, because that's really what they're selling to employers is come with us and we'll give you a unit cost that's lower than the next guy. Uh, everything else is just, you know, dressing, right? But that's the key thing. Yeah. Now, if, as, so that makes sense when the employer is making a decision because the HR person wants to make sure that with that one decision, they're meeting everybody's needs. So if yeah. an insurer has a very wide network with lots of good discounts all across the country, they have an advantage. If the consumer is buying. If I am buying in Minneapolis, I care about having good hospitals and good doctors in Minneapolis. I could care less about good hospitals in Kansas because yeah. I probably wouldn't go to Kansas in the next 12 months. Uh, not because I hate Kansas, it's just that I don't have no reason to go there. Um, so the, the, so I can now you know, easily buy a plan that is very strong regionally and not at terrible nationally, which was not the case if my employer, who has employees all across the country, has to make the decision. So yeah. if that network, and I think there are, you know, some larger companies that are very network reliant, those are the ones that I, you know, their business model won't make sense in the future. There are others that I mean, I think the aetna CVS thing is is a good deal. Yeah. I mean, we're beginning to see that bear fruit for CVS. Um, and, uh, to me, that deal made sense and other insurers are also taking the right steps. But, so I think it will sort of start separating the wheat from the shaft pretty quickly here. Okay. Uh, pretty quickly. I mean, 20 years, that's, that's pretty quick. <laughs> right um,
0: and then I guess, so you just mentioned that the Aetna CVS, you can see how it's benefiting CVS. Do you want to talk a bit more about that?
2: Well, I mean, uh, in the sense of it, it just gets them closer to the consumer. And um, you know, for, for Aetna, it becomes they, they have a way now to reach the consumer uh, where they right. are through through
0: CVS channels. Yeah.
2: For CVS, they have a benefit of actually affecting the back end product design, which then affects yeah. the way people behave. Yeah. So they can design things in the back end that actually yeah. help them take advantage of the assets that they have in the front end. Um, so in that sense, to me, that front end back end alignment, at least in theory, makes sense. We'll see how they execute on it.
0: Okay, and any thoughts then on what happens to some of these larger tech companies, you know, uh, the Amazons, Googles of the world? Do you feel like there is some opportunity here? Just given how close to consumers they are, is there some sort of an opportunity here that we're missing or that we should be harnessing? Well, I wouldn't presume to talk to Amazon and Google about their
2: strategy, but on a bigger point, I think there are tons of companies that are close to consumers that have a good consumer brand. And by the way, that's not just all tech companies. I think there are plenty of Of other companies that have very strong consumer brands that can leverage that to uh, essentially, because in healthcare, one thing that is scarce is a brand name. Like, you know, most health insurance companies don't necessarily have that brand recognition with consumers or even have that recognition, they don't have the affinity that you do, you know, consumer tech, for instance. So I think there are large companies that are close to consumers that have a huge opportunity to come out of healthcare. Um, I don't think that many of them have really gone into it in a big way uh, yet but but is there is that something we think about at gravy as potential threats to us uh, for sure uh, also potential to the point you were making Chandana, are potentially opportunities for partnership as well yeah
0: yeah uh, okay. I just noticed that I have to upgrade to Pro, which is weird. I'm I apologize <laughs> because I do have a Pro account. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to re This this is the downside of <laughs> being
1: pretty, pretty big, doing it remotely a so. bit. yeah, so, yeah.
2: So. I got thrown out of my board call because my computer ran out of memory apparently. So
1: oh really okay okay fair enough. Fun times.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so you yeah. think there's there are some insurers that will make this change? Do you think they'll do it by acquiring people like gravy or by bringing in consumer people or, yeah, how do you think um, the ones that, that will make the change will do it?
2: I think the ones that make the change will do it by recognizing that uh, what they need to have in terms of assets um, needs to make the consumer's life better versus thinking that what they need to have as assets is meant to make the employer's life better or the government's life better, or somebody else's yeah. life better. Uh, that's it's about as high level I can get it now. I mean, will they acquire people? Sure, will some people do it in house? Maybe, maybe somebody, maybe a reinsurer comes in and becomes a health insurer tomorrow uh, yeah. because they have the balance sheet to do it. Um, so I think there are, you know, it's just impossible. So I think, you know, perhaps a futile errand to try and predict the future. But the ingredient for success, I think, is a set of assets that uh, helps the consumer be uh, better at health. Whether that be you know, get, you know, when they get sick, somebody's taking care of them, if they wanna stay healthy, they're helping them stay healthy, um, and then creating business models, and then of course the infrastructure that support the business models to succeed. So that's about as, as far that I think at least I can see um, yeah.
0: And I guess the good news is that that was kind of the message we got from all the people we spoke to as well as part of that initiative um, where, you know, the member outcomes, obviously ROI for the company and their business model succeeding. I think that was definitely kind of the same um, sort of success metrics that people wanted to track um, aspirationally anyway. So I think yeah. that's, uh, that's quite aligned. Yeah. Any barriers a- that you see in terms of, uh ROI in terms of achieving some of these things that we just spoke about in terms of success metrics? Um, I don't think
2: the barrier is to me ROI necessarily. I think mean, the barrier is the destruction of things that has made people successful in the last 20 to 30 years. So I think it's really hard for large companies to give up what has worked in the past. Uh, to try something that they have no idea whether it's going to work or not. Yeah. Right now, what has worked in the past is getting in the way for, especially for peers, in making the transition to the future. So I think that shows its head in the, you know, when people talk about, uh, oh, you know, I can't monetize my digital health investments. Uh, I think it simply means that you're not making the right investments because yeah. there is a huge, you know, that that really hasn't happened in any other industry where people say, I increased the technology in my business and, you know, I'm worse off today. So, <laughs> so clearly there's, there, there's something not else, a not a sustainable model really, is it? Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: right. How, how is the crisis, the COVID crisis, um, has it changed things in terms of income become more consumer driven, do you think? And
2: Oh, or, for sure. Or- uh, from the provider side, for sure it has. Uh, you know, simply because people can't go to the doctor and they don't want to go to the doctor's office. So, you know, as you guys know, I mean, telehealth has taken off and um, more and more. The interesting thing is I'm actually seeing more startup companies also come by that are not just about telehealth as a consumer interface, but they're looking to change the infrastructure uh, and the back end sort of processes that'll make telehealth better. So when you see sort of, uh, you know, to make the gold rush analogy, when you see people selling picks and shovels instead of just trying to mine for gold, you know that you're coming into the next stage of the revenue. You know, <laughs> of, of so the, the shovel makers are uh, essentially coming up now for telehealth. So, so I think that has advanced um, consumerism from that sense, uh, simply because if they're more, in, you know, consumers become more invested in the way that they get healthcare and then they begin to understand the trade-offs and price, etc., that cannot but help have an impact on the way we finance healthcare too.
1: Right, You're, are you optimistic that this will stick, that the, the move towards telehealth is something that's gonna last or do you feel it's going to go back to normal once we find a, a therapy or a vaccine or we start to figure out how to uh, manage the situation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I uh, I think I'm more than optimistic. I think um, I, I'm fairly confident that it, it that it has that fundamentally has changed. Uh, and it was changing before. So it's not like we were going left and suddenly we made a hard right. It was, we were already going left and now we're gonna go left even faster. <laughs> so right. uh, so in, in our population, we see it, um, you know, being in the healthcare community from the provider side, I see it um, and it's not just healthcare. I mean, I'm, an, I'm a trustee at my university. I think, you know, tele, everything is probably gonna increase, right? So I mean, tele-meetings, I are mean, the airline stops down, partly because perhaps people will meet more through Zoom or whatever, so.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, uh, yeah. So, Abir, it's been a real pleasure. Um, we delighted you could come and talk to us. And, uh, you know, it's one of those CVs that I look at and I, I just think to myself, my God, what am I doing? Like, here's this <laughs> man, who's got all these companies successfully and keeps doing it. And uh, we're delighted you could, you could be here. Um, and we have our favorite it.
0: question, like, Martin.
1: Yeah, I don't know whether you like this question that we're going to ask you if you weren't. I don't think uh, I don't think this is a question you like, but we'll try it. If you weren't in gravy in another world, what would you be doing?
2: Well, I'll tell you why I don't like this question is the things that I would like to be doing, I'm not sure the world will let me do. So <laughs> what, I, what I'd really like to be doing is to go out with a band, be the lead singer. Uh, no, but perfect. if you heard me sing, uh, and maybe you did, maybe at some karaoke place, but uh, that, that may, may not be the best thing for the world. But uh, uh, so, so that's, that's the reason for my hesitation Asking answering a question. That's yeah. a
1: fantastic answer. OK. Yeah. So I, I would suggest keep going with gravy. That's going pretty well. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you very much.